This past week I got two emails from people in this congregation that were greatly encouraging to me and I want to share them with you and I have their permission to do so. Uh, one was from an elder in our congregation who in response to last week's sermon just shared with me, you know, you might recall how at the end of the sermon I had suggested some ways in which we could engage meaningfully with every single part of the worship service. And this particular elder wrote how the the encouragement to come on time, not that he wasn't coming on time, he said God encouraged me and my wife to come earlier than even on time so that we could use that opportunity to minister and reach out to people as an extension of their calling. Then later on in the week I got an email from a lady in this congregation. Uh, She talked about how in the places, her work takes her to different places that she assigned to, in the place that she was assigned to work, there were some uh, untrue and hurtful allegations about her work that had been made against her. And so she said, I really didn't feel like going back to work. And yet as I was reviewing your message, and you reminded us that we are to worship even at work, uh, she said, I realized I need to radically reorient my priorities to get as much of Jesus as I can. And so when I, sh- and I came in that frame of mind to God, she said, the Lord showed me how uh, I just needed to control my tongue that day at work. And to worship God that day at work meant to be careful how I spoke. And she said, tears of joy began to flood my heart as I realized that God loved me so much that he would speak so specifically to me. I'm just so thankful when I get feedback like that. And last night, a lady, uh, Pastor Cheryl, I don't know who it was, Pastor Cheryl was talking to somebody and she found out, she said, oh, we don't come here regularly, but we were here last week. And in the message, Pastor Sundar told us to come every week, so we are here. And it has been such a relief because every Saturday there used to be tension in our home deciding whether to go to church or not. Now that's over. I am so grateful when a congregation listens and obeys God. It's an encouragement to me to continue to obey and serve you even more wholeheartedly. That's why those five questions are there in your bulletin. I don't want you to get used to those questions. They need to be fresh before you every week. What is God saying to me about my relationship with Him? About my relationship with others? What is He showing me about my heart? What do I need to think about differently? And what one step of action does God want me to take? So every week we want to draw your attention to that until it becomes second nature. As Pastor Cheryl reminded us, listen carefully. Now last week we began this series that we call Worship the Lord in the Splendor of His Holiness. And we focused on the word worship to get a good understanding of what worship was. And we basically saw that all of life was worship. And worship is basically the deliberate reordering of life's priorities to get as much of Jesus as we can. Today I want to focus on the second half, the Splendor of His Holiness. Now we all know that the Bible teaches us that God is holy. And yet if we are careful in our reading, we will discover that this attribute of God is treated like no other attribute of God. For example, it is repeated. When in the Hebrew they repeat something, it's for emphasis. But nothing is repeated three times. Only the holiness. Once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, the curtain is pulled back on worship in the heavens. And we hear the angels crying, holy, holy, holy. Never in the Bible do we find the angels saying, wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. Love, love, love. We even sang, holy, holy, holy. Do you remember a song, mercy, mercy, mercy? I don't. What is this about holiness? Is this the most important of all the attributes of God? Not really. We need to dig a little bit deeper. It is actually the characteristic of all the attributes of God. This is something unique about God. So much so that His mercy is a holy mercy. His love 
is a holy love. Asham pointed out to us, his fatherhood is a holy fatherhood. His justice is a holy justice. Holy is what qualifies everything about God. And so it becomes very important for us if we're going to worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness to understand what this thing called holiness is. Now, now most of us, if we were asked to define holiness or explain it to somebody, we're probably linking it in our mind to something to do with moral purity. The holy man or the holy woman is a man or a woman who's morally pure. And there's certainly that dimension involved, but we've got to dig a lot deeper because in the Bible... Holy is applied to things that don't have any moral dimensions to them. Uh, there's holy ground. There's holy anointing oil. There's the holy city. Now cities and oil and grounds don't have moral dimensions to them. So there's got to be something far more to holiness than just morality. Although it includes that. And the one person that helped me dig into this deeper than anybody else is R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God. 30 years ago, I think he wrote it. It's still a classic. If you haven't read it, read it, reread it regularly. The Holiness of God. And he talks about how the word holy comes from an old word which means to cut. So imagine taking a scissors and cutting a piece of cloth and separating one part from another. That is the central idea of the word holiness. To cut in order to separate or to set aside. We use it, for example, in everyday language, like you're going to watch the Super Bowl tonight, if Brady wins, he's going to be a cut above everybody else. Thai silk is a cut above every other kind of silk. We use that language, in our everyday language, meaning it is special, it's unique, it's set apart. So holy ground is not morally better, it's just ground that's been set apart for a purpose. Holy anointing oil has been set apart for a particular purpose. So when you apply that to God, you begin to get the central idea of holiness. God is an infinite cut above everybody else. God is in a class. He's not the best on a sliding scale of goodness. He's the only. There's nobody like him. His, in, his wisdom is an infinite cut above every other wisdom. His love is an infinite cut above every other love. His justice is an infinite cut above every other justice. That is what the holiness of God really means. Of course there is a moral dimension to it as well. And that's an inf- his righteousness and his purity is an infinite cut apart and is in a class by itself. He is the only. And that's why he is the only one who can set apart something as holy. That's why he can take ordinary ground and say that's holy and it becomes holy. It's set apart for his purposes. And do you know what's the first thing in the Bible that God set apart? It might be surprising you some people. It's time. Genesis 2, 3, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now I reminded you recently, if you were here for the Christmas Eve service, and I've done that periodically, about the difference between chronos and kairos, when it, two Greek words for time. Chronos refers to the quantity of time. So when we say this worship service lasts 90 minutes, that's chronos. Kairos, on the other hand, has to do with the quality, the season of time, the meaning of time. And it is in that sense God sets apart time and makes it holy. So this 90 minutes is not only 90 minutes of quantity time, it's also a special time set apart for God's purposes to accomplish His will and work in our lives. So time is holy. Then of course, ground is holy. For example, when God um, met Moses on the backside of the Arabian desert, He says, don't come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. An ordinary piece of desert sand in the Arabian desert suddenly becomes holy. Why? Because there God 
is going to encounter Moses in such a way that the direction of his life is going to be changed completely. And a nation along with it. And then thirdly, of course, people are holy. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Israel and the Old Testament and the church today are holy people. Not because we are better than anybody else. We may not be actually. But because he sovereignly has chosen to set us apart. As his own people for his own purposes. To declare his praises. Which is what we talked about last week. And then to proclaim that goodness. Whether it's through Kevin and Valerie in Thailand. Or in a short term ministry with uh, Steve and Rochelle. Or our neighborhood in the orange box of our purpose statement. That's what we've been set apart for. And we become a holy people. Rexdale becomes a holy people. Because God set us apart for that purpose. And think with me, when we gather together for worship like this, there's an incredible convergence of all those three elements, isn't there? We are a holy people who have been set apart in a holy place that's been set apart, in holy time that's been set apart. You ever think of a worship service like that? You ever think of walking into church on Sunday at 9.30 and say, wow, this is a convergence of holy space, time and people. Nobody knows what's going to happen. It's a place where we can encounter a holy God. Now what does an encounter with God look like? You should know. We should know. It's what we're coming for. To worship God in the splendor of His holiness. What does an encounter with a holy God look like? Ben Patterson in his book Waiting tells a story that at first sight may seem to have nothing to do with this question. But has everything to do with it. He talked about a time when Franklin Roosevelt, a president of the U.S., was at one of those uh, incredibly boring uh, official uh, events at the White House where he was just standing in line greeting the dignitaries and everybody had this plastic smile upon their faces just muttering those inane things that people do and things like this. And he got the feeling that nobody was listening to what he was saying to them. So he suddenly slipped in the statement. He said, I just murdered my mother-in-law. Of course, his suspicions were confirmed because those inane statements just continued. Nobody blinked until one man ventured to say, I'm sure she had it coming to her, sir. (laughs) These people had lost the capacity to be shocked at something that was shocking. Now, the reason he tells the story was when I still remember the first time I read it, the chill that came over my heart. Because this is what he said. He said, we have handled holy things for so long that our hands have become cauterized to holiness. If you're not periodically shocked by what God says and does, then you're probably not listening to God. It was that first part that gripped my heart. We have handled holy things for so long that our hands have become cauterized to holiness. I handle holy things three times every day. That's scary. When a person's entire calling is supposed to do with holiness, that's very scary. Because my hands can get so easily cauterized. And this was a terrifying week in that sense, a much more sobering week yesterday and today to prepare for this preaching. So I want to walk you through a couple of examples in Scripture, and only two of a few of them, that should shock us. We either glibly go over them or we react inappropriately. I want to walk you through that. The first one was fairly early in in the history of God's people. After Moses had delivered them from Egypt, he had given them instructions on the tabernacle, the tent of worship. He had ordained the priesthood. It was seven days that Aaron and his sons were ordained. And so the first kind of offering takes place and they are ready to bless the people. 
So then Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And while all the people saw it they shouted probably in joy and fell on their faces as God so wonderfully accepted their offering. And then something happened that nobody expected. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Now just imagine. They were just at the beginning of their worship life together. The sentence was pronounced. And carried out instantly. No delay. I mean, what did they do that was so bad? Just a little worship innovation, right? Look at the phrase, unauthorized fire. What they did was unauthorized. Was it because the incense was something that God hadn't set apart? Or was it at a time that hadn't been set apart? Was it by a people, although the people had been set apart in this case? We don't know. It's what people call the sin of sacrilege. Campbell Morgan, that great English preacher, defines sacrilege as taking that which is commonplace and treating it as holy. In some way or another, it was unauthorized. Now, they should have known better. Because if you read the story, you will find that for seven days, God prepared them and he told them at the end of it, you stay in that place for seven days and don't leave it. Do everything just the way I told you, lest you die. The seriousness of it was clearly shown. They just decided to innovate and experiment. Must have been a very sober night. I can just imagine people going into the tents. It's dark, remember, it's outdoors. And there's two burning heaps of embers, right? The first burning heap of embers what brought joy to them. The fire consuming the offering. The second one consumed the offerers. Roosevelt didn't murder his mother-in-law, but God just took care of two people. That's shocking. Here's another story, a few hundred years later. David, king of Israel. Israel was at the peak, really, of her history. Jerusalem had been conquered. He was now king of all Israel. And he was bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. David was a man who loved God. He was a worshiper. If he was nothing else. And so the ark of the covenant was Israel's most sacred cultic object. It contained the ten commandments. It contained a jar with the manna. And it took its place right inside the holy of holies. That, that central location where God's manifest presence was dwelling in the camp. And only a high priest could go there only once a year on the day of atonement. Otherwise anybody walked in there, they died. And so David was just joyfully bringing this back. So they put the thing upon an ox garden. David was presumably walking alongside of it. And David was an exuberant worshiper. It was party time. They were reveling in this. He was excited that God's presence was coming into the city that was going to be the capital. And then all of a sudden the unexpected happened. Uzzah was a man who was walking alongside. And the ox cart stumbled. Oxen stumbled. And the Ark of the Covenant was about to fall to the ground. So Uzzah instinctively reached out and touched it. And says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the Ark of God. 
But the problem with this text, or this event, I should say, is that God is portrayed in Scripture as long-suffering and slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Yet here he just explodes. Not only that, there was no provocation here. I mean, Uzzah just did what most people would instinctively have done. Any pious Jew, this holy object, I'm going to let it fall to the ground. God should have thanked him, right? Thank you, Uzzah, for being so careful about my holy things. Again, the problem is these people were carefully instructed. God was teaching them about holiness. And this is what the Uzzah was from a tribe that was responsible for transportation. And in Numbers chapter 4 verse 15, when they were setting out, it says, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. They were specifically instructed about this. The unapproachable holiness of God. When something has been set aside, you, don't do, you do exactly what God says. Nothing more, nothing less. And R.C. Sproul points out so insightfully, he said, the interesting thing is, if the thing had fallen to the ground, the ground was maybe medically dirty, but it was morally clean. There was no moral dimension to it. It wasn't sinful ground. Uzzah's hands might have been medically clean, but they were sinful human hands. That ark was more defiled by a sinful hand touching it than the ground would have. David's party was over. This is God as the ultimate party pooper, right? Celebrating about worship and doom. One more person dies. Again, Roosevelt didn't murder anybody, but God just took care of one more person. Now, of course, we look at things like this. We say, this is why I don't like the Old Testament. This, this is the angry, wrathful, awesome. Give me, the, give me Jesus. Give me the New Testament. Okay, well, let's come to Jesus. So Now Jesus has come. He has died. He's rose, risen again. The apostles are preaching the gospel. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. Many are poor. Some are wealthy. And so periodically as the Holy Spirit inspires them, some of the wealthier people were selling their lands and bringing their money to Jesus, or to the apostles, so they could give it to the poor. And there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who decided to do this. The only problem was, after the house was sold... They didn't give back, give it all away. They gave only some of it. That would have been okay by itself. It's just that when they were giving some of it, they made it appear like they were giving all of it. It didn't seem all that serious. I wonder how many of us would be alive if that was taken seriously by God. But when Peter confronted them and said, Is this how much you got? And they both lied about the wrong amount. They both died instantly. So no difference in the New Testament, folks. What happened to Uzzah, what happened to uh, Nadab and Abihu, is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they lied. God said, you lied to me, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You're dead. Now our instinctive reaction to all of this is amazement, really. I mean, God, come on, was this really that serious? A little worship innovation in one case, a technological innovation in the other case, because they were supposed to carry the ark on their shoulder. They kind of put it on a cart and said, hey, that moves faster. Good technology. That's all. And okay, so maybe they didn't give all the money, but they gave some. Isn't some better than nothing? That's how we think. We're amazed. 
And Sproul in his book talks about what he calls, there's a whole chapter called the locus of misplaced amazement. He said, we're amazed at all the wrong things. We're amazed that God could execute five people like this for trifling with his holiness. He said, what we don't realize is this is what should happen to everybody. Because we're all sinful. They were no worse sinners than us. No better than us. We're all sinful people. And when sin meets infinite holiness, this is the only thing that should happen. He said, you and I should be incredibly amazed, not that five people met this fate, but that only five people met this fate. This is not God's norm. It should be the norm. What is the norm is grace. So let me take you back and walk you through two incidents, one in the old and one in the new. Where... The same thing should have happened to the people that happened to these five. But something completely different happened. Which, praise God, is the norm. The first is Isaiah. She already referred to that. Israel's probably greatest prophet. One day he went to the temple. Like you come to church. Prophets went to the temples for all kinds of reasons. We have no idea what he went there for. I know that he didn't go for what actually happened. Because this is what happened. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That would be wonderful, right? Except, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. This prophet that had been preaching woe, Because the previous chapter, the fifth chapter of Isaiah, is all about woe upon Judah. You're going into exile. And sin after sin after sin is cataloged. That's what prophets did. But now it's woe is me. The word I am lost is the word I am undone. And we sang that in the song. It means to literally be coming apart. Disintegration. The internal cracks of sin were not just pulling the man apart. That's what happens when sin meets holiness. What should have happened to him was the logical progression of that and you're done. Join Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira. But that's not what happened. What happened was grace. What happened was God saying, I'm going to cleanse you. And that's not enough. I'm going to commission you. And for 60 years you're going to preach. And 3,000 years later in one church you're going to hear 73 sermons on that. That's grace. Same thing happened in the New Testament. Peter and the other disciples were catching fish. Tried to catch fish. They worked all night. Fishermen catch fish at night, I'm told. I don't fish. That's what I've been told. No fish. So, Jesus is coming upon them. They've just been mending their nets. Discover they haven't caught any fish. He said, put the nets down again. Well, you just imagine Peter's reaction, right? Here's a rabbi and a carpenter telling a fisherman when to catch fish. All he responds is, okay... Because you say so. Uh, there must have, the, the, the printed word doesn't give us emotions. But if I was a betting man, I'd probably say, he's probably saying, oh, you say so, I'll do it. And I'll show you in a few minutes. Whether fishermen know better or carpenters know better. Of course, you know what happened. The, the nets were so full of the fish, they were breaking. Now, I don't know how long Peter was joyful. There must have been a little bit of joy. Because, hey, we're going to live again. There's fish coming to the market. We're going to get money. I don't think it lasted very long because all that is recorded for us is Peter says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Now listen, Jesus wasn't even preaching. You can understand that if Jesus was preaching about holiness and convicting people as he did at times, you could imagine a response like that. He just did a miracle. He just gave people fish where there was no fish. Would you have anticipated a response, depart from me for I'm a sinful man? 
That's what we call a non sequitur, when something you say doesn't follow something else. Two plus two is equal to four, therefore I'm going shopping. That's a non sequitur. Sounded like a non sequitur. I give you fish and you tell me, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. You know why? Because Peter knew there were no fish there. He knew when fish bite. He knew where the fish were. And if suddenly there is fish where there is no fish, to that Jewish mind well instructed in God's word, they knew right away only one person was responsible, which means I'm standing before him right now, which means I'm finished. Because no one can see God and live. So he said, get away. Get away from me before I die. That's what he was saying. He understood Isaiah. He knew Nadab and he knew Abihu. He knew Uzzah's stories. And he said, I don't want that to happen. Go away from me. Because Jesus did the same thing to him. He should have had the same fate as the others. Jesus did for him what he did for Isaiah. It's okay, come Peter. I don't need to depart. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'll commission you and send you and give you a mission. That's why this is good news. And that tone has been set for us throughout the service. A confrontation with the holiness of God that awakens us to our sinfulness to the point that we feel we are disintegrating, that we don't want to have anything to do with Him, is good news because it doesn't end in death. It is not a precursor to death. It is a precursor to proximity that forgives, commissions, and gives us purpose in life. That's the norm. Uzzah, Ananias, and Sapphira, and Nadab, and Abihu are not the norm. They are the exception. The norm is Isaiah and Peter. That's why grace is amazing. And there's one of the stories that I want to complete now to show you how this works out in people. This is what God said. This is the good news. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Notice, he is holy. His name is holy. He inhabits eternity, which is holy time. And he lives in a holy place. But also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Listen, we cannot close the gap between us and a holy God, but he can and he does. This is the astounding thing that God says, I am holy. I live in a holy place. I inhabit holy time, but I will also live intimately with that man or that woman who is lowly and contrite. And a one who trembles at my word. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the only requirement. That's the only requirement. Don't push away holiness. Tremble before it. Humble ourselves. And he comes close. In that holiness... Holiness comes close to us. And we're able to dwell intimately with holiness. So here's the picture. You go back to the story of Uzzah. I haven't told you about how, what, what, how did David react. Remember it was his party that God reigned on. How did David react? What well, we're told. He didn't like it. That's what he says. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of God. So this was, notice the progression. Anger, first of all, that's that misplaced amazement we talked about. How can God do this to me? When I am ready to worship him. I was attempting to exalt him and he killed Uzzah. How can God do this to me? And anger turned to fear. I don't want to hang around this God anymore. He was not willing. 
He wanted to put a distance between himself and God. That's the trembling part. That's the trembling part, which is good. That's where he starts. But here's the beautiful thing about David. What made him a man after God's own heart? He wasn't really all that spectacular a human being. Read the life of David. Not just the two sins of David that we are aware of. At the end of his life wasn't all that spectacular either. But the thing that made David special, that sets him apart, is that he couldn't stand the thought of not being close to God. (laughs) Distance from God was something he couldn't bear. You see it in his psalms, you see it in his prayers. He said, warts and all, I got to be close to God. So he couldn't bear this. It only lasted three months. So he goes. It says he went and brought up the ark of God. By the way, this time, no technological innovation. No ox carts. Levites, get it on your shoulder. And every few steps they stopped and they worshipped and they made up. He wanted to be absolutely certain he did it just the way God did it. Because that's the only way you party. When you do everything the way God did it. Because that's what happened. And he brought it from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing and David danced before the Lord with all his might. Please see the progression, folks. Anger, fear, reluctance, hunger, obedience, exposing joy. What is God's agenda? Just to hold us in fear? Or to continue from that to the kind of obedience that leads to exuberant joy? Now, one question with that we're finished. What is it that allows this incredibly holy God, this one who is infinitely a cut above everybody else, this one who is in a class by himself, what allows him to close the gap, to come to sinful people and say, no, I'll dwell with you. Without compromising my holiness, I will dwell with you. What allows the God to do that? You say, well, that's because he's merciful and gracious. No, 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 no. The mercy is a holy mercy. The grace is a holy grace. You cannot be merciful and gracious apart from your holiness. So you've only repositioned the question because the question now is, what allows God to be merciful and gracious and still be holy? This was the question, by the way, that I asked my dad in the last three months and probably was the key, at least the question he began to grapple with. And the answer, of course, is Jesus. That's what makes all the difference. Jesus' death on the cross is what exhausted to the fullest the wrath of God. It is at the same time the most magnificent demonstration of the holiness of God and the love of God. He died the death that we deserved that we might have the life that only He could live. I wonder... I wonder whether we do not treasure the cross. I wonder whether we do not marvel at grace because we have not trembled before holiness first. Because we don't know what it is that we have been set free from. What make everybody knows that even some of you who may not be Christ followers, you know what amazing grace is. You say everybody sings it. Pop stars sing it. But what makes grace amazing is holiness. That's what makes grace amazing. That such a holy God can close the gap between you and me while still being holy. And yet sadly we don't like to be reminded of it. We'd rather not have sermons like this. That's what happened to Isaiah by the way. This is what they said. They said to the seers, prophets, see no more visions and to the prophets give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. 
Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Basically they were saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, we'd rather you preach lies to us that we even know our lies but they make us feel good. Just stop giving us this stuff about a holy God. Just miss the point completely. Yet that's exactly the confrontation you and I need to ask God for. This is what we need to say, God, I want, I want to be encountering this holiness. So I could learn to tremble better than I have ever trembled before. So I can go on that path from anger to fear, to unwillingness, to obedience, to explosive reverential joy in my life. We should want to be exposed to preaching like this. I'm not talking about me, by the way. I'm just talking about Isaiah and David and the scriptures. And when that happens, and it can happen in so many ways, then we need to respond properly in humble, in humility and contriteness. We need to say something like this, God, all the sins of profanity, taking that which is holy and treating it as commonplace, all the sins of sacrilege, taking that which is commonplace and treating it as holy. All the casualness in my worship. I deserve what happened to Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira. All the things I've pledged but haven't given. And when I cry, woe is me. Depart from me, I'm a sinner. Then amazing grace takes over. And he says, no, I want to dwell with you. I want to live with you. That's our response. So here's the fundamental choice that's before us. It's a choice every day, right? Are you going to say, this is the one I... He who's humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word? Or are you going to say, stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel? That's the choice before us. And I kind of summarize it again in one sentence for us. Tremble before holiness and live exuberantly. Soothe yourself with illusions and shrivel up. Will you say that with me? Huh? Tremble before holiness and live exuberantly. Soothe yourself with illusions and shrivel. Let's say it one more time. Tremble before holiness and live exuberantly. Soothe yourself with illusions and shrivel. Now next week, I want to, in the third message in this series, I'm going to devote the whole sermon to understanding what trembling looks like. What, what, is, what does it mean to be contrite in spirit? What does it mean to be lowly? What does repentance really look like before a holy God? We, because that's, found, that's the only thing he wants us to do, to close the gap. And so we better know that well. But we don't have to wait till next week. We can start this week. So very quickly, if there's even one or two people here who have never come to that point in your life where you have trembled before a holy God. You've never heard these things before. You've never understood the dimensions of God's holiness. You've never understood why. Why we need salvation. Why, you know why? This is the God you're going to stand before one day. And at that time your religion is going to be useful. I don't care what religion you're in. Whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a Christian, whatever you are. If you're depending on your religion at that moment, when you're going to stand before unshielded holiness, you will have nothing. You will be speechless. And then you will disintegrate. The only thing that will be able to clothe you that day is the righteousness of Jesus. Putting on Jesus and his righteousness as a garment. As you identify with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And we are here as pastoral staff, elders. If any of you need help in understanding that further, there will be people at the front willing to pray with you through that. But maybe that's a starting point for you. At least think about it. 
And then for the rest of us, most of us here, I don't know where you are today. Maybe you need to begin that journey back to God. Maybe you've been holding Him at arm's length. Fear, anger, unwillingness. Maybe you need to begin the journey back in trembling, in humility, and in submission. That amazing grace will close that gap. And this one who lives in a high and holy place, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, can say, I'm going to live with you. Let's take a few moments. A very special blessing for you today. You know, I was being overwhelmed the last couple of days because today is kind of one of those unusual days where I'm preaching here, my son's preaching right now in upper room, and Sham was singing and Sheila was leading in worship. I was so overwhelmed. And why? We've been set apart, not because we're any better than anybody else, but by the sovereign grace of God. And then this morning, as I was thanking God for that, I thought, oh, but there's another family that has made that possible, and that's this family. The reason why my kids love, this, love the church is because you have treated us so well. You have given us no, our children nothing but gratitude in their hearts. And so they love Jesus. So it is your love that has blessed us. And so I want to bless you with a lot more of that love. There may be some people here who have been hurt by churches in the past. I just want you to ask you to stay here long enough so you can feel the love of the people in this place. And I want to bless you. I want to bless you with an overwhelming love of the Father in you. And may it flow through you to touch people all around you. Go in Jesus' name.